One of my favorite pastimes is dreaming. To sit back and just pretend that all the world's problems and struggles and difficulties and any obstacle that might stand in my way simply did not exist. If I could do whatever I possibly desired, in my dream world there would be no bureaucracy, there would be infinite resources that were available to me, time would have no limitations, I wouldn't have to worry about city codes or compliance in any other direction, rather everything that I possibly wanted could come to fruition. It's so much fun to sit back and just pretend that there was no obstacle in our way. The problem, though, is that that world does not exist. There is some benefit in dreaming, however. If you've never tried the exercise, you probably don't realize that once you get through a rather simple and superficial list of things that you could do in your dream world, the desires of your heart, really this exercise is about trying to figure out what do I want to begin with. And after I get through the small little list, I realize what I want really doesn't matter much in the scheme of a bigger reality. In my fantasy world, I realized that my goal in working uh, wasn't that I would be able to retire someday, but because not having work actually seemed pointless to me. My goal became to desire a job or a position where my true passion would be nurtured and encouraged and challenged, where I would be able to grow in my relationship with God. The problem, of course, with this true passion is that even in our perfect realities, there are still obstacles. To have something that matters is really what should be at the end of our goals. Can I tell you something? In a world where there are no obstacles, there really isn't a lot of things that matter at all. Well then, does that mean that the struggle of life what makes, is what ends up making things worth living? Is it the reality that obstacles exist that make living worthwhile? No, I wouldn't even go that far. There's something greater. There's something almost from a secular point of view or from a worldly point of view, from someone who didn't have the Bible revealing these things to them, there's something almost mysterious that makes life worth living. Why is it that a person or that, that I am so passionate about the church because, well, the reality is, and the exposure of these mysteries as they're untold, as they're revealed, it's because it's God's church. Why is it that I would be so interested in God? Why is it that anyone would be so interested in God? Well, it's because when everything's all said and done, when the value of life is hung in the balance, all that truly matters is God. All that is perfectly sustained is the creator of the universe who existed before anything, who is perfect outside of everything, who was all loving and compassionate before the existence of the world, who created everything that we could possibly observe for His glory. The concept of God's glory, though, is challenging. Well, if I say everything that exists in this world exists for the purpose of God's glory, that means that 
I'm everything, or at least I'm something, I hope, which means that I must exist for God's glory. Well, that means that you exist for God's glory too. The problem then becomes, what are we supposed to do that could possibly glorify a God who is perfect outside and without us? How easy it would be for us to lose sight of our purpose in existing to be God's glory. Either because we don't take the time to dream, because we don't take the time to work out what our perfect fantasy would look like if there were no obstacles, to realize that even if we had everything that we think that we want, life would still be lacking substance without the Creator and without a relationship with Him. It doesn't take long to work this out. Take a second. What's the thing that you want most right now in your life? Imagine that you have it. Are you satisfied with it? I doubt it. Because after that, there's something else. And even if you had that, after that, there's something else. Is your life nothing more than a rat race after the something else, after you work towards what you want? Or is there something more? Is there something greater? I tell you this morning that I love to dream because the reality is that as I dream, it draws me closer to God and realizing that the only thing that matters is His glory. Do we really believe that God is the one that does the work or are we focused on everything that we do to contribute to His work? Do we really believe that when we talk about the church, when we talk about the strength of the church and the power of the church, that it's God that is working within the relationships of people? Or do we think that it's our fixation on our own abilities that bring glory to Him? Do we think that glorifying God is accomplished through my zeal in being a godly person? Do we think that it's accomplished through my zeal in understanding what God has for me in His Word? Do we think that godliness is most aptly seen in a person who is committed to doing all of the work? Or is it more glorifying to God for a person who is capable to do great things, to surrender themselves completely and wholly to a God who is able to do even greater things because He's a perfect God? This morning, I want to warn you, our sermon has ten points. That means we're going to fly through these points. Now, if you really want me to fly through these points, I want to ask something of you, church. I know that there's a lot of us out this morning, but most notably, the people who will say amen are gone this morning. You've got to step up. Amen. You really want me to move through this sermon, tell me that you get it. Tell me that you get it. That's what amen means. I agree. It's true. When I say things that the Bible says and you see it, tell me it's time to move on. We'll fly through these points. The question we'll be considering this morning is, how does man glorify God? Our church's mission statement is to point people to God. I'll ask you this morning, do we actually believe that we can do that or do we expect God to do it? 
our mission statements to pull people to one another. Do we think that we can do that through simply being committed through relationships, or do we think that that's the unifying power of the Spirit that exists in a regenerate church membership? The third point is to prepare people for mission. Do we have a burden like Nehemiah to encourage each other to live on mission where we're at? Our text this morning is Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 8. I invite you to turn there with me and we will read from God's Word and then fly through these ten points. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that it would be an encouragement to us as we ask the question this morning, what does it mean to glorify you? That as we read from your word and read from your recorded history, that we would know you better and we would know how to live for you today. God, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would be able to behold the amazing truth found in your law. The Bible says, Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of the day, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shenani, and they cried with a loud voice to their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, and Sherebiah, Hodaiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, and all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. All God's people said, that's good practice. First point this morning, I want to talk about this concept of confession. First, let's put this in the proper picture so that we understand what's going on. Where we left off last week, the people of Nehemiah's day had just gathered. They weeped. The Israelites, or the the priests, actually, the Levites, told the people of Israel, don't weep, for today is holy. Let's worship God. They left. They came back. They read the book of the law. They found written in God's law that on the 15th day of the seventh month, they were supposed to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. So... Guess what they did? They observed the Feast of Tabernacles. Significantly, though, the feast had not been observed since the nation of Israel had been brought from Exodus into the wilderness in the days of Joshua when Moses handed leadership over to his um, protege. 
when they first came into the promised land, until this time, they had not observed the Feast of Tabernacles. The people became complacent in their spiritual worship of God, neglecting these things that they had given to them. And now, after the seven days, on the eighth day we find there was a solemn assembly. One day passes, and now on the 24th day of the month, the people are again weeping. At least, in some way, demonstrating what it would look like to be mourning. They're carrying sackcloth. There's dust on their heads. They're coming together. And I ask, why, after such a solemn assembly, after the beautiful festivities that we described last Sunday evening, why would they be again weeping, or at least mourning. The reaction, again, is because the people were committed to God's Word, which reveals to them their absolute position in relation to God. It reveals to them how devastating the reality is that these people could be called out by God through a blessed lineage from Abraham onto them, the father of the Israelites, that their disobedience would continue to not glorify God. Well, that's a lot of power to put in man's hands to say that it's possible for you or I this morning to do something that either does glorify God or doesn't glorify God. Let's be clear about one thing. God's glorious whether I glorify Him or not. He demands glory because He's worthy of glory. My obedience to Him is not constrained to His glory. Rather, my obedience to Him is constrained to how glorified He has made me. How sanctified He has made me. How relational He has come to dwell with me. Nehemiah 8.8 gives us the picture of God's people telling the people that even though the Levites telling the people of Israel that even though the Word of God exposes our sinfulness, as Hebrews 4.12 would say, as the Word of God divides asunder, sharper than any two-edged sword, revealing to us the innermost intentions of the man as a mirror, even though the Word of God exposes us how desperately we need Him, the reality of God's Word is not one worth mourning because it is painting a picture that despite that, our confession gives us truth. Oh, oftentimes when we talk about confession, we wrap up in our minds that confession simply means admitting what I did wrong. Confession is something more than that. The Bible clearly tells believers that we are to confess our sins to one another. That's one side of confession. Admitting when we failed that we might be encouraged, and most importantly, that our relationships would be restored. I don't know what this trend is, but it seems like people simply want to say, I'm sorry, and move on. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've heard someone say, I'm sorry to you, and they just want to move on. I want to be honest, something I struggle with, and this is perhaps a lack of grace in my own character. Don't imitate this, but be compassionate towards me if you see it demonstrated in my life as I seek God's changing grace in my life. When somebody says, I'm sorry to me, my first question is normally, what are you sorry for? I don't like empty apologies. They don't mean anything to me. Most of the times, when somebody says, I'm sorry, and then you say, what am I sorry for? And they have nothing to say after that. You know what it means? They're not actually sorry. They just want to move on. 
Confessing our sins to one another requires us to be specific. As the Israelites did as they stood up and confessed the sins of their fathers in their disobedience and their failing to keep the law of the tabernacles. Confession is something else. We talk about confessions of faith, confessions of statements. A confession is simply to admit that something is true. When I say that God is glorious with or without me, that is a confession of God's character. Simply saying, what is true? And look here, friends. What the Bible teaches us is that God is glorified because He's a truth-telling God. God is glorified because there is no substance that is contradicted in the inspired, infallible, profitable for teaching, training, and righteousness, reproof, and rebuke, Word of God breathed out through Him, through the carrying along of men. That in all of the time that the Bible was written, it tells one story that is cohesive with itself. That there's a reality around us. Not only is my truth in my sinfulness, but my truth is in that I serve a glorious God. A redeeming God. A God who tells the truth to me and does not lie to me. He does not deceive me. Those of you that know me particularly well have, well, I would hope in some way seen the idealistic way I approach most problems. In my young tenure of leadership in, in a different world and in, in business life, I can say that if there was any ounce of success in my leadership, it was in the fact that I wholeheartedly believed that obstacles to success are just an illusion created by the part of our brain that simply doesn't want to do work. Most of the time when we admit that something stands in our way, I think the reality is we just don't want to do the work to overcome it. I believe that the reality is if you roll up your sleeves and commit yourself to faithfully working, not rushing, but through, as a team of talented people, Faithfully working and enduring each obstacle as it comes before you, you can accomplish anything. I believe that in the business world. Can you imagine what I believe about the church empowered by God? Not only is the same true of the church, but the power that exists in the church to accomplish much is greater than anything we could possibly imagine. The problem is we don't think of the church in these same terms. Not, at least not in the same terms that we do in our more familiar workplaces. We don't regard the ministry of the church as a work that we need to contribute or participate in. Church life is ministry developed. Actually, church life is ministry development. The reality is that as a member of a church coming together, our truth is not just that we need to come before God confessing the realities around Him. The truth is, is that we're being prepared for a life of mission with this God, trained for the work that is expected of us to participate in it. 
And this is the most important point about our reality. Our work is not there for us to contribute to glorifying God. It's there for God to glorify Himself through us. The more we understand this, the more truth we'll be able to confess. Ephesians 2.10 For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Philippians 2.13 For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Loved ones, if we're truly dedicated to glorifying this truth-telling God, we have to be scrupulously aware of the halo effect. I don't know if you know what the halo effect is. Let me tell you and then we're going to move on because I've got nine other points to rush through. Whenever surveys are conducted, surveyors take into account that the people being surveyed have a glorified, some amped up version of themselves and they don't really tell the whole truth. We put a halo around our heads. Christian saints, if we're truly going to worship God, we have to consistently be in the practice of humbling ourselves before Him. Not so that we would weep, not so that we would come before Him with sackcloth and dust on our head, but so that every moment that we stand up, we realize it's by His grace that we do so. Every moment that we speak up, we realize that it's by His power that we do so. Every moment that we rise together and sing together, It's for His glory that we do so. We'll jump on down. God is not just glorified in that He is a truth-telling God, but He's glorified in that He is the singular God. Verse 6 of our text, after being commanded, and, and it doesn't tell us who's told to stand up, but in my head, this is Ezra because he was reading The Levites and all these people tell Ezra, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Now this is a tough sell to tell someone, Stand up and bless God. How do you bless someone who's glorified in himself? Nehemiah begins in verse 6 and he says, You are the... Lord, you alone. Not only does he use the definitive article here to describe that God is the one God, but he uses, uh, well, whatever part of speech that is, he says, you alone. You are the God. You alone are the God. God is glorified in that he is singular, that he is the one God. God of glory. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema that we should be familiar with at this point. God commands the Israelites, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Exodus 20, verse 1 through 6, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your 
God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and to the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God places incredible emphasis on this reality. He's glorified because he's the one God who can pull everything together. Not only that, but he's the one true God who pulls all things together. Ezra goes on saying not just that God is the singular, or I said particular in my notes. At one point I was working on um, um, alliteration and then I gave up on it. Singularity is much better than particularity because he's singular in truth. Ezra goes on, though, to say that you have made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Romans 1, 19 and 20 gives us this picture that the glory of God is seen in creation. Verse 19 of Romans chapter 1 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Psalm 19.1 echoes this again, that the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hand. Psalm 139 verse 14 goes on that I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Creation glorifies God and declares his glory because as we look out into it, there can be no denying that God is great and wonderful. I ask then as I consider this fact, the one point that troubles me the most is how is it possible that anyone could deny God? How could they walk? on a trail, and not observe God's glory, His divine majesty, His divine power pouring out from them, His eternal goodness. How could anyone go fishing and not observe the greatness of the Lord Most High? How could anyone do anything without seeing God glorified? And the reality is, as I think about this fact, I realize that this isn't obscured just in the world, but this is obscured in Christians as well. How often do we neglect our day-to-day life as we rush on the roads to get to wherever we're going, whatever destination we're trying to arrive at, and we don't stop and wonder in bewilderment how glorious God is? God is glorified all around us, but the problem of our flesh, even in our eyes, the problem of sinfulness in us is that it keeps us from observing this glory. This is why natural revelation will never be a perfect way of pursuing God unless, unless we are sanctified by His Spirit and His power. Unless we're glorified and we're able to see the goodness of His creation and the brambles and everything else, God is glorified. And even in observing myself and recounting what the psalmist teaches us, every piece of life, every ounce of life, every human hair, the heads of your head are counted. God formed you in your mother's innermost parts. He knitted you together. Your body glorifies God. Who you are glorifies God because what he has put together is intricate and marveling. God is glorified because He created all that we see. 
God is glorified because he preserves all that we see. Ezra, speaking next, you preserve all of them. You preserve all of them. The creation of heaven and earth, the heaven of heavens, everything that exists on land, everything that's in the sea, God preserves them. He holds them together. He not only holds them all together, Colossians 1.17, He is before all things in creating them, and in Him all things hold together. Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work, watch this, in you, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How could anyone deny God in creation, I wonder? The the laws of physics tell us that any system left alone falls into chaos. Right? That's entropy. That's the second law of thermodynamics, right? Someone who's a science buff say, yes, that's true, because I actually don't know what I'm talking about. But I'm pretty sure if you take anything and you let it alone on its own, it falls into chaos. And we said that this is an observable law of nature. And at the same time, the entire universe moves almost as a choreographed system around a solitary sun. Ecosystems hold themselves together through an intricately connected and interwoven reality that there is a give and take. Where is the chaos? Is our system just too big that it hasn't been left alone long enough? Or is there something holding it all together? The Bible tells us that there is. For the Christian, this carries even more significance as we realize that the new life that's placed inside of us is brought to completion in God who is continuing to work in you. God is glorified in our struggles to be holy. He's glorified in our continued faithfulness to Him. Not in our failings, not in the moments that we fail, but as we come back to Him, recognizing His power to sustain us. God is glorified in His preservation as He holds all things together. God is glorified in His selectivity. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham. From the beginning of God's relationship with humanity, He's been in the business of choosing. He has the power not only to choose, He has the power to judge, He has the power to preserve, He has the power to hold all things together. And what we find in the nation of Israel's history is that God chose Abraham. But I want to get this clear that God did not just choose Abraham with the purpose of of just blessing the nation of Israel. But as we look at this, what we find Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 4, that the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make for you a great nation and I will bless you and make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all, watch this, the purpose of the Abrahamic covenant, the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's selectivity is marveling. 
He chose Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Not with the purpose that all of his descendants, that the nation of Israel would, would be particularly selected, but that through the blessings lavished upon this special relationship, this covenant relationship with Israel and God, that God would become would bless and extend the blessing through the Abrahamic covenant to all the families of the whole world. God is glorified in that He chooses. Ephesians 1.4, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that He would be holy and blameless before Him. John 15.16, the words of Christ, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, that your fruit would remain. Consider this, you are not here by accident. If you need any thought more humbling than this, know that your salvation is by nothing that you do, but completely by what God has done in you. Not only that, but the work that you will do will continue to rest on His glory in you. Amen. God is not only holding all things together, He's propelling us in His glory that He would be glorified more. Not because He needs more glory, but think about this. Because He wants to be a blessing to the families of the whole earth. That rocks my boat. It rocks my boat to think that God would think so little that He has every right to think nothing of me because I am nothing without Him, that He would choose me. Oh, that's humbling. Not just that, He's going to use me. He's going to use you because He chose to do it that way. God is glorified in His faithfulness. He's glorified in His faithfulness. God, God's faithfulness and in the faithfulness of His people. When Ezra says that He chose Abram and brought him out of Ur to the land of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham, He found His heart faithful before Him. Can you imagine... What makes Abraham so remarkable is, is that at this point in history, I mean, just consider this. All the obstacles, all the struggles, everything that I can go through in life, I go through 66 books of the inspired Word of God, and I can see how God has provided for His people time and time again. Abraham is clinging to this promise. I am the Lord, the Almighty, the God. And I'm going to make you a generation. I'm going to bless all generations that come after you. I will make you a great nation. You're going to be faithful to me. Today, I look and I think it should be so easy to be faithful to God. Looking through the story of Nehemiah, even after they were conquered by the Babylonians, we see that as God disciplining His people because He then appoints Nehemiah and sends him with all the provisions of the king of, of Persia that he would be able to rebuild this land in 52 weeks and all of it would come together. God is faithful to His people. It should be easy for me to be faithful to Him. 
But is faith measured by how easy it is for us to be faithful to God, or is it measured by how challenging it is? In Abraham's case, I think what he is attributed most with faithfulness is because he didn't have all of this to go back on. All he had was the Word of God. Can I tell you something this morning? The Word of God is enough for your faith too. What God has promised for His people, for His church, for the individual, is enough to stay faithful to Him. God is glorified in faithfulness. Lamentations 3.22 The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is thy faithfulness. His mercies begin fresh each morning. God is glorified in his commitment to his people. Going on, God made a covenant with Abraham. An unbreakable vow. A promise to sustain him. I said Abraham's faithfulness was based on nothing more than the word of God, the simple word of God, not the canon of scripture that he could go back and see all of these promises fulfilled, but simply in God's promise that he made a covenant with him. That he selected him, he chose him, and he bears this covenant out. This new covenant. For us, we know that this covenant extends even to our relationships today. Hebrews 8, 8 and 12 tells us, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. God is glorified that even in the promises given to Abraham, carried along through history, through the failings of the nation of Israel, neglecting the Feast of Tabernacles from the time of Jeshua all the way to the time of now, whenever they are rebuilding the wall in this second era after Ezra and and everything else and Hosea's time. and, And then we follow the prophets and everything that's come, the failings that exist in Judges, everything that God has proven that people cannot sustain this perfect covenant with Him, that He will remain faithful. The picture of Hosea gives us the picture of a prophet called out of God's people that he would marry a prostitute. And that through this demonstration, God would prove his loving kindness towards his bride. That despite her failings, despite her unfaithfulness, despite her promiscuity, he would pursue his bride. He would cleanse his bride. He would make her holy unto himself because he does not desire from her a relationship where he would would be called master, but he desires from her a relationship from her in which he will be called husband. 
This carries over into the church in a remarkable way. And if you need a better illustration, Ephesians chapter 5, which we just covered a few weeks ago, covers it perfectly. And that God's expectation of His church is not that we would simply refer to Him as Master, but that we would see Him as our sustainer, our provider, our giver of life, and that He would be glorified in that. That is, we fear different things that may come or things that may go or struggles that might happen or laws that may change. The church will be preserved through His goodness for His glory. God is glorified in the provisions that He gives His people, in His provisions that He lavishes upon His people. That these people would be given not just to a life of wandering and pursuing God, but that He would bless the nation of Israel with the land of the Canaanites, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashites. That He would provide Nehemiah as he returns to rebuild the wall with letters from the king that grant him access back to Jerusalem. That He would grant him with the lumber needed and giving him permission to take it from the forest. That He would get there and have men to stand beside him and support him as he does God's work. God doesn't send us on a mission without also providing, but he does require us to be faithful in knowing that he will sustain us to the extent that he needs to. The reality is those of us who do not have much need to get this in our heads. That is a blessing from God as much as an abundance. The reality is, living in a world where it's possible to have many things, our our dreams that we may conjure up in our own mind, our different forms of idolatry as we look at the things that we might pursue, this is what's amazing. When God withholds from us, He pushes us towards a closer relationship of coming into knowing Him, in relying upon His goodness, in providing for us. And He doesn't just do this once. He doesn't just provide for us. God's not just singular sometimes. He's not just creating one time. He's not just preserving us once or twice. He's not choosing us now and getting rid of us later. He's not just faithful to us or demanding our faithfulness that we can wander later. He's not committed to us that He can change His mind. He's not providing for us and then giving up on us. But He's doing all of this in perpetuity, forever, from eternity to eternity, choosing you even before the foundation of the world. God is blessing us in perpetuity. Ezra says, you have kept your promise. He's keeping his promise. Hebrews 12, 22 and 29. The promise of God most gloriously demonstrated in the reality of the heaven that is to come. The redemption that's not just extended to the saints, but grab hold of this. Redemption, reconciliation, it does not just exist for our bodies. It does not just exist for the saints. God is restoring all of creation, which has borne the scars of sin. Hebrews 12, 22. You have come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, 
the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteousness made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him to warn them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At the time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that, are, that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In perpetuity, God has promised to remove everything that bears the scars of sin. Everything that cannot be established by his kingdom will be gone, and the saints will walk the earth again, feeling grass that has no scar of sin in it, walking on earth that has not been hardened by sinfulness, living in a restored creation. And last but not least, you don't have to say amen on this one. We're coming to the last point, so you can say praise God. God is glorified by His righteousness. Ezra says, For you are righteous. He was asked by the Levites to stand up and bless God. And what did He do? How does man bless God? Than to look to Him and acknowledge Him for who He says He is because He's telling us the truth about who He is. 1 Chronicles 16:34 Oh give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever Psalm 25 verse 8 Good and upright is the Lord Psalm 23 This goodness doesn't just extend to God but it promises to follow God as he pursues us Surely Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When we come together for worship, oh, it's so easy in my head just to imagine, just to dream just a little bit, to to have in my mind the picture of what it looks like to glorify God. To have Jesus standing before us as we sing to Him. I don't know if you carry that same image. For me, as I worship God, I imagine Him standing before me that He would hear my voice. And even as my voice cracks, as my pitch has no place or any business in in being in public company, He's glorified by the spilling over of my heart that knows Him. Our worship can only be good to the extent that God is glorified through it. 
That isn't a measure of the goodness of our voice. It isn't a measure of the goodness of our rhythm. It's not a measure of the goodness of our relationship with one another or our identity with the church. Our glorifying of God is in relationship to how much we know these ten points. That God tells the truth, that He's particular, He's the one God, that He created everything, that He sustains everything, that He is caring for those who He has chosen and that He's chosen you. That the Word of God is what provides for us. It gives us faithfulness towards Him, that we worship Him in faithfulness, that He is committed to that relationship. That He'll give us everything that we need to glorify Him. That He'll sustain us from now until the end of time. As we sing our last song, I want to challenge you, church, to think about how God is glorified. How do you glorify God? Is it through your own volition, through your own strength, through your own willpower? Or is it in your surrender? Is it in giving over yourself? Is it in being a bride who calls her husband not master, but husband? Would you stand with us as we prepare to sing?